Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week on The Exchange, we're joined by composer and sound designer Suzanne Chiani. Most RA readers would know Chiani for her pioneering work with modular synthesizers, but it's just one facet of a career where significance has only recently become fully understood. Apart from receiving five Grammy nominations, her sound design work is some of the most iconic of the 20th century. But following a campaign of reissues from the Finders Keepers label, Chani was discovered by a new generation of electronic music fans. Now placed alongside originators like Delia Derbyshire and Laurie Spiegel, Chani is respected as a historically crucial figure, whose understanding of the fusion of sound and technology was years ahead of the curve. In conversation with Christine Kakari, we hear of Chiani's surprise at the interest the reissue spiked and how it triggered the latest evolution in a long and winding career in sound and music. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Suzanne Chiani is up next. from the music content itself, which was absolutely um, transcendent and otherworldly, what really struck me was the staging um, and how accessible it was. Um, you were kind of in, in the middle of the round of Silent Green with people sitting around you um, and there was a big screen that was kind of giving a lot of insight into um, all of the work and all of the gestures and all of the kind of um, patch chords that were moving at this tangled bird's nest of, of patching chords and um, all of your various controllers. And it really kind of made it clear to me that this unwieldy instrument, it was actually a performance instrument, which I thought was a really special message to kind of take away. Um, is that something intentional for you going into these performances. That's exactly the message that I wanted to communicate. And that's why 
uh, I want the audience to be able to see the interactions and how the actions produce uh, musical results. I think in this day of technology, a lot of performances are just uh, opaque. You know, people sit with their eyeballs above a, a computer and uh, hit play. So I come from kind of a, an historic period at the beginning of the invention of these analog modular instruments. And so I won't go on and on now, but, but it really was in those days a concept of live performance without a keyboard. So the keyboard came along as a way to assure people that this crazy thing was a musical instrument, but then it short-circuited the possibilities of, of how you interact with it. In the last couple of years, um, a lot of attention has been given to your uh, innovations and your influence. And I suppose that has led into the increase of live performances that you've been doing over the last couple of years, that in combination with um, a number of music releases, which we can talk about in a moment. Does it feel like a, a vindication of some sort or a justification? Because this is a, a machine that you have been working with, collaborating with, contending with, like managing, bringing your artistic viewpoint out of for, for nearly 50 years now, does it feel like finally you're at a point where the reception is kind of catching up to the intent? Well, I'm the most stunned of all individuals because I never expected this to come. I was aware, acutely aware in the day that we lost it you know that that the uh the potential was never reached and that nobody understood it because when i first played the audience didn't even have a concept of a machine making music so it's always been a kind of behind the scenes small group of people you know the tech buddies that knew what was going on but the public didn't know now, what I've noticed is that there's a huge, uh, a much larger audience for this. I don't know if the general public has caught on, but there's such a mass of young people who are engaged in analog modular that it seems like everybody is like tuned in. And it's just such a joy for me. I, I couldn't be more uh, thrilled to come back. It's like, it, it's a dream I never even dreamed, you know, that this could happen. So uh, I'm really happy. And I, I do feel, I always felt somewhat of a responsibility. In the early days, I felt a responsibility just to, you know, be patient and communicate to people what this was. And now my communication is on a higher level. Because instead of just you know, dealing with the concept of electronic music and spatial music, quadraphonic music, uh, we're dealing with really where is it going to go from here? What are the instruments going to look like? How are they going to be designed? We have a proliferation of designers now, a lot of modules coming out. But what do we want to say with this? You know, it's not just te technology is a... Uh, can be a booby trap because we get uh, sidetracked by what it wants to do and how it can do things. Uh, 
and we need to focus on who we are, what we want to say, and how we want to best design the interfaces to express that. We're in a very primitive, still, even though we've come so far, it's still really, it's really fascinating how how we haven't, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't know where it's going to go, but... Um, to what degree are you participating in these conversations or perhaps um, initiating them? Are you in a position where you're able to kind of consult with people or ideate with people about what these future developments ought to be? Or you're, you're still just kind of um, looking forward to what those future innovations are going to emerge as? Well, I work on several levels with this. So I, I do work with engineers and I collaborated with a Moog engineer for a year. Uh, what incentivized me really was that Don Buchla passed away two years ago. Now, Don is the credited with being the first engineer ever to make an analog modular music system, and he did that in 1963. I met him in 1969 and went to work for him. So I grew up under his... Uh, vision of what it could be. And his vision, uh, by the time I met him, had shifted. Because when these instruments first started, they were really, you know, the ideas, well, how can we make a sound? What sounds can we make? What can it sound like? And then we can record it and make another sound and record it. And that's how it started. But by the time I met him, he already figured out that these things could be playable, that it wasn't about the sound. It was about the way you interacted with the sound and the way the sound moved. He was the first one to devise this quadraphonic controlled, you know, uh, spatial modulation. And that was an essential ingredient, which it still is, but nobody's doing it as much as we did back then. So, you know, so anyway, my my job is to mine the, just what we already had. We don't even need to come up with anything. I mean, there are new things. I mean, the, the whole graphic interfaces, those are, I, I don't know how you integrate those into this system. It's a very tricky thing. Um, so, I have ideas, mostly based in my my years with Buchla. And it's very challenging. You know, when you think of actually designing a machine, I mean, Don Buchla did this morning, noon, and night for his entire life. The Leonardo da Vinci, you know, of instrument design. So how, you know, rude of me to think that I can just decide I'll design an instrument this year. You know, it's like, uh, but so my other job is to communicate the actual live performance of these instruments so people can see that you can play them. And, and then the designers can incorporate a consciousness of performance because if you're, if you're trying to make a performable instrument, it's a whole set of other considerations. Like you want feedback, you want the lights so you know where things are. Technology is so uh, subversive in a way. 
we lose sight easily. Like the new Apple computer, you know, the new MacBook Pro. They got away all, they, they got rid of all the connectivity and they made it look pretty. It's, I can't say enough about how we get, uh, what's the word? What's the word when somebody seduces you? You know, technology seduces you away from the thought process of what you really need to be doing. I'd love to ask you a little bit more about your, um, experience as a performer with this particular uh, system, this particular modular system, the Buchla, to what degree are you able to, I suppose, predict or guide or um, control, I suppose is the word that I want to use, um, the output and the outcome? Because as I mentioned before, this is you were known for being a real virtuoso with the Buchla, and this is an experience that's kind of reaching back back several decades now. So, for example, in the performance last night, to what degree is the output what you conceive of in your mind going into it? Okay, a couple of thoughts uh, popped up when you asked that question. Um, one is I just I just need to say that the 200 system that I played in the day is different from the 200E and in many ways had was more performable uh, the 200E is a hybrid system, so it does have some memory. It, it, it makes some challenges. The other thing is that because I'm on the road, I need to have a very compact system. So it's already a compromise in terms of, you know, what capabilities I could conceive of having. But I have to put it in a suitcase and put it on an airline. Then the predictability I think the joy of performing is in somewhat of the risk. So you don't want it completely prepared. I mean, I used to do, before I did a live performance in the 70s, like those two concerts from uh, Buchla 1975, I would rehearse for a solid month. I had my first concert uh, that one didn't get released because we didn't record necessarily then. I played in an art gallery in 1974 in New York. I went to New York a month ahead of time and I rehearsed every morning into the night for a month in a studio that somebody lent me. And that's what it took because uh, it was a choreography. You had the material, but then you had to finesse how you were going to get from one patch situation to the next one. How could you make those moves in a choreographed way that landed you there? I've gotten a little lazy in the new system because I do have memories. I don't use very many. I only use three or four because there are, there are pitfalls. The machine likes to go out of tune. If I'm using 30 memories, I can't possibly tune 30 memories <laughs> in a sound check. So over the two years that I've been playing the 200E, I've uh, refined my approach a little bit. So I use a few. So I consider the memory a starting point. And then I know it's going to happen. There are always some unpredictable things. 
So I have a clone of my MARF, the Multiple Arbitrary Function Generator. And it's supposed to put out pulses when it's in strobe mode. And it's got this little problem that it doesn't always do that, you know. (laughs) And you can trick it. But so there are things, just the machine being a little bit, uh, you know, here, here's the thing. It's like a chain of logic. It will put out strobe pulses, pulses on the right side, provided there's no pulse on the left side. This is not a design feature. This is an error in the system. <laughs> this is, so when it doesn't, you know, in performance last night, it's like, oh my God, it's not putting out pulses. And I thought, okay, let's check one. And sure enough, over on the left side, there was one pulse. I got rid of that and everything was fine. But that kind of thing is exciting. Keeps you on your feet. I deal a lot with randomness. So I want random results in certain parts of the design. Did you did you like the jungle section last night? I, this is a new part of my performance where it's kind of this immersive jungle, you know, birds or whatever. I did definitely detect birds okay, at a certain good. point. Yeah, <laughs> there was there was certain passages where it was um, parts that sounded like human voices and parts that sounded like birds. There were these very definitive um, kind of like mood breaks throughout yes. it. So yes. yeah, yeah, yes. that sounded wonderful. Some of the birds were from Australia. Oh, there so, you go. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out you. to Australia. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned that you started uh, playing the bouclier again two years ago. And we'll, we'll kind of go backwards chronologically at some point. Um, but I'd love to know what actually precipitated your uh, performance. I believe it was in March of 2016. Uh, was when you uh, performed for the first time in 40 years. So what was it that led to that decision to come back to this mode of performance and to this machine? Two things. You know, one was that um, after 19 years in New York City, I did move back to the West Coast. I came for one year and never left. Sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) It certainly does. (laughs) And there I was in Northern California, where I had originally met Don Buchla, and where he still was. And we reconnected, but just really socially. So I've always had a huge, you know, I, I, he is my, even though we had a very difficult time in the beginning, over the years he softened as a human. And I always say it's because of the uh, influence of his wonderful wives you know, those women just really humanized him. <laughs> Took the edge off. <laughs> the edge off. And we became good friends and especially tennis buddies because I, you know, my passion is tennis and so is his. And I would play a lot, uh, you know, in Marin and I would just make an, the extra little trip over the bridge to Berkeley and uh, have a match with Don. And so I would go to his studio and see what he was working on, but I wasn't even tempted it didn't cross my mind. And then one day he called and he said, look, if you're ever thinking of going back to this or pursuing this again, now is the time. And there was a sense of urgency and I hadn't thought of it. And he said, but I'm selling the company. 
And so if you want to get involved, now is the time. And so I said, well, okay, okay. And I put together a configuration of modules that I thought, you know, would be a useful starting place and uh, bought that system. So I bought a 200E system that I put together. And uh, sure enough, the business was bought by an Australian company. And then it was downhill from there because the Australian company was not, did not have his, they, they weren't honoring who he was. They were looking at him as a brand. And they didn't have an understanding of the unique. It was so very sad. So, uh, so then the next thing that happened was that through this struggle of losing his designs and losing his instruments after a life of work. And he passed away. And at that moment, you know, it was as if the, for me in some way, that the baton had been passed. Not officially, but I, I just thought, okay, now is the time to honor him by playing this instrument. And the other very strange thing is that I played at the invitation of Moog. When I was growing up in this area, you know, West Coast Bukla, East Coast Moog. Mm, this rivalry. Complete polarity and rivalry. I would never, you know, buy a Moog or, you know, I really, I held them in just distant disdain, you know, because they had ruined, you know, the future of electronics. You know? <laughs> so, you know, times change, thank God. Uh, and especially in this world of boutique personalities, designers, and competition. It's now a family. You know, Tom Oberheim and Dave Smith collaborate. Uh, Don has worked with Moog, worked with Bob. So when Moog asked me, I did clear it with Don. I said, Don, is it okay if I play a concert? It's a pre-Moog Fest concert. And he said, oh, wonderful, wonderful. And then I did play at Moog Fest. Um, I said no at first. And they said, no, 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 this is in honor of Don Buchla. Emmy Parker at Moog is one of these modern, brilliant women who sees the whole. It's a holistic approach. And she really embraces all the individuals that are part of this big flowering system. And so Moogfest has become a very, uh, you know, Catholic, eclectic, in, inviting place. Um, well, let's, let's cycle back, uh, I suppose, to that era um, in the uh, early to mid-70s um, when there was this distance separated by the coasts between Buchla and Moog. I suppose I'm saying, were there any benefits to this rivalry? Do you feel like um, innovations that were happening over on the East Coast, like when you observe them, that that would, to some degree, push you or um, inspire 
a new way of thinking or a new type of process? Um, were, were there anything, was there anything positive to be taken out of that? Uh, it depends on where you're looking. Uh, I would say that definitely in terms of the analog musical instrument, there was nothing gained from the East Coast. Because uh, once they put the uh, keyboard on it, it just, it collapsed. It collapsed everything, the thinking. Don was stubborn. He was a maverick. He he analyzed, he never, he never played to the market. And he also felt that if he did become commercially successful, that he was doing something wrong. Because he knew that he was really the seed for this new thinking. And how he thought was that he went right back to the basics. You know, he looked at the human body. He, he looked at the human mind. And he didn't do anything automatically. So if he was going to make a keyboard, he didn't say, oh, there's a keyboard. Let's, you know, modify this keyboard. No, he said, well, look, look at the human hands. When you lift them, what's the shape they come up in? They don't come up in this, uh, you know, uh, like a kind of rigid. Yeah. What's, what's that word when it's at 90 degrees? 90 degree angle. You know, the, the regular keyboard wants you to be at a 90 degree angle. And your hands, when they come up, they're at a 30 degree angle. So his keyboard looked like that. He said, it doesn't make any sense to have a key depressed because that mechanical motion, it's what we're doing is a key closure, it's a switch. And so he did a touch plate. He designed sequencers that were very sophisticated. He designed, you could take, you know, any module because the modules are similar. There's an oscillator, there's an envelope, there's a filter, you know, all these little building blocks of the system are, have something in common. But once you go into what that filter can do, I mean, the Moog filter is famous. It's wonderful. But then what, say, uh, an envelope can do? How can you, and Don always thought of it as a live instrument. So how can, what operations can you do live? He had a voltage controlled, and I use this even in my, you know, modern system, which isn't quite as sophisticated, uh, voltage controlled attack and decay. Uh, it was more sophisticated in the earlier one. So, uh, but all of these, uh, design refinements, were exclusive and the feedback you know you when you play moog uh in the day i mean you didn't know what was going on inside there was no communication from the instrument so um no don don is unequaled and he still is and that's why i'm out playing even though i'm not playing as well as i did in the seven in, you know it's fun why do you say that that you're not playing as well as you did in the 70s there were things that I could do back then that I can't do now. I could make, for instance, and, and I wrote a paper about all this, you know. So if anybody's interested, <laughs> I don't know where you find it, but um, I wrote a 40-page paper uh, called, uh, let's see, the Report to National Endowment, because I got a grant. And it's about techniques for the bukla, how to play a bukla. 
And when I went back after all these years, I read that paper and I started there. I used the exact same 16 note sequences that I had used. The, the material that I'm using is the same as what I used in those recordings from 1975. Mm-hmm. So it's raw material, so you might not recognize it. You might. I was curious, interested in what you were just saying before about um, Don being unparalleled and how the keyboard didn't, adding the keyboard perhaps didn't add anything uh, innovative. But I think I just find that an interesting perspective as you were a classically trained pianist. Is that correct? That's correct. I believe that you met Don Buchler in 69 or 70 yeah. um, mm-hmm. when you went to Berkeley. Yes. Um so what was that process of, was it like a process of unlearning that you had to go through personally um, to unlearn what I'm sure was ingrained in you to some degree through your training to kind of like break down the paradigm of what you knew to be able to contend and play this instrument, which was so forward thinking? Did you have to kind of deprogram yourself to a degree? I thought of them as completely separate music worlds. I gave up the piano because I was committed to demonstrating that this was not a keyboard instrument. So I, I did feel this calling, you know, to, to represent this new thing. And I didn't want any confusion. I didn't want people to think that I was a keyboard player now playing a, a an electronic instrument. So I actually didn't play the piano for almost 10 years. But the shift came. I mean, everything was shifting. I moved to New York. My bukla broke. I couldn't get it fixed. Meanwhile, technology had marched on. And all the young designers, you know, had been bought by Japanese companies. And it was now this massive uh, commercial business. I was doing sound design in New York. I started out with just the Buchla. But as the Buchla took a back seat because it couldn't be fixed, I just adopted all the existing technology that was out there because I became, you know, the high-tech music house uh, in New York City. Uh, so... And that's Chiani Musica, Musica, which is Chiani a company. Musica. Yeah. yeah, and in the heyday, I mean, there were thirty kids in that studio, all you know, young synthesists, and we were the clearinghouse for all and beta testers. You know, we we beta tested the uh, and designed sounds for the DX7 and for Roland, and uh, you know, we had so so my music also at that point because of my heartbreak over the bukla. And honestly, I don't know if people were ready for that music. It is a bit abstract. What happened naturally was that when I finally had enough money to begin my recording project, I did a synthesis of my classical roots Mm -hmm. with my tech life and did a completely electronic album, Seven Waves, but it wasn't uh, live bukla. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the the sentence that you just said, that perhaps it was too 
future forward if people weren't ready um, for the sounds that you were making with the Buchla. Um, I read a quote, uh, which I'm paraphrasing. I think it was the time that you had moved to New York and or perhaps when you were still on, on the West Coast. It was kind of like within the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and you had this kind of really optimistic assumption that these sounds and this machine would become a part of everybody's everyday life because it was a part of your everyday life. And you were kind of heartbroken when you discovered, I think, when you were still at university that this wasn't something that people were willing to accept. But I love that when you moved to New York, I feel like it was almost like quite subversive, like this kind of guerrilla tactic when you went into the advertising world. Um, and so many iconic sounds that are related to brands that people do know and products that people would have had in their homes is like intrinsically related to the sounds that you were making with the Buchla, which I think is like a really lovely um, subversive act on your part. Um, so if we could like stop off in your uh, chronological history just to kind of talk about this period of time um, where you were working in New York with these huge advertising agencies and these huge brands um, going into meetings. There's a very famous anecdote, which I'd love to hear you talk about. Um, perhaps we'll talk about it now, um, your development of the Coca-Cola pop and pour sound. Um, it'd be great to hear it in your own words, how how that came about. <laughs> I've told that story a few times. but <laughs> It never gets old, though. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, I got to New York to do a live Buchla concert, and I fell in love with New York. I, I actually had been living in LA for a couple of years before that. And so I never planned to stay in New York, but I just uh, left everything in storage in LA and I stayed in New York and pretty quickly I got hungry. So I needed to make money. And that's how my pursuit of advertising started. I was desperate. And I think that's a wonderful incentive. You know, starvation and desperation are two wonderful things to keep you going. Um, so I needed to find advertising. Somehow I found out about this thing called the Red Book, which was a list of all the advertising agencies. And I picked the top 20 because I wanted to start at the top. I've always thought that way. You know, why start at the bottom? I mean, and I was in New York. So I got the top 20 and I... Uh, made a notebook, and I called them. And of course, every time I called, they would say, call back in two weeks. And so I would make the note, and I would very punctually call back in two weeks. The largest agency was McCann Erickson. And I called them religiously. And after a year, two years, I, I finally got an appointment. I went to the meeting, and nobody was there. So I was very disappointed from my great excitement. And I went back and started to call them again. And months later, I got another appointment. I went and nobody was there. The third time I got an appointment, I was absolutely not going to let this get by. So I said, you know, I had an appointment with Billy Davis. He was a black uh, producer from Detroit who had been brought by the largest agency to transform music and advertising. He brought in all the great R&B singers, Aretha Franklin. You know, he really had a huge impact on music. I didn't know him at all, but I said, where is he? 
he has an appointment with me. And they said, oh, well, he's uh, at, uh, you know, the studio in Times Square. I went to Times Square. I marched into the studio. I said, where is Billy Davis? And they said, well, you can't see him. He's recording. I said, where? And, and they nodded towards Studio A. And I just went right into Studio A. And I interrupted in the control room and I said, you had an appointment with me. And this guy looks at me like, I'm from outer space. <laughs> I was like, well, who are you? I amused them because they'd never seen, you know, such brashness, you know, and I really was starving. You know, I had to do this. So he said, well, what do you do? And I said, I make sounds. And he said, well, listen to this. And this is so bizarre that this moment occurred at this juncture that they were working on a jingle for Coca-Cola and had an idea of maybe putting something in this blank space. It was a radio spot. And he said, can you do something in there? And I said, yes. The answer is always yes, right? I says, "Uh, well, what do you need? I said, I need my bukla. Obviously, nobody knew what that was. He said, "Uh, go get it. So I went and got my bukla, which in those days was huge. It was like five road cases. And I had a cartage company that followed me. And they they brought that to the studio. I set it up and uh, decided to design a sound. You know, because I I was um, economically motivated. And I said to myself, as my brain was burning with thought, you know, if I do a sound that just fits into this one commercial in E-flat, that'll be it. But if I can make a sound that would be generically, you know, uh, tuning, that would fit in any place, it has more options. So that's when I thought of the bubbles. Because the bubbles are musical, but they're not tonal. So... The bubbles were designed with a very low frequency, very easy in the bukla. You take a low frequency sound wave and you put it into a filter and pick off the harmonics. So that's a harmonic series. It's very pleasing. It goes up. Sounds like bubbles. Um, it's funny how the real sound can never compete, you know, with the, with the design sound. <laughs> and yet you think that design sound is real you know well that's the thing it's become so iconic that if you think of coca-cola you can see the brand you can taste the taste and you can kind of hear that manufactured effervescent sound even though it's not necessarily what it sounds like in real life which i find absolutely fascinating i mean how long did it take you from um billy davis saying fill this space to you coming back and saying this is what i've prepared for you? Well, we did everything. You know, there were no home studios in those days. If you wanted to record, you were in a big studio. I was in that studio with him. And we did it that day, right there. Yeah. And that's how it was done. Um, Everything was, you know, in those days, everything was a little bit expensive and out of reach. If you wanted to do a record album, you couldn't just record at home. I mean, this seems, <laughs> I'm sure this will shock many young people now who have <laughs> grown up with this, but, you know, it's thousands of dollars a day 
the studios were enormous. They were big machineries of of sound. And so to do my album, I had to make a lot of money to do that. Coca-Cola really helped. <laughs> I should hope so, and and some of the other um, some of the other big brands that you worked with. Um, I mean, was there ever a point? I mean, now kind of looking at it through that perspective of you needed to have access, or you needed to have resources to have access to be able to use your machine the way that you wanted to. Um, was there ever a point where it seemed like it was never going to happen, or it just wasn't an option for you? No, it wasn't an option for me. I mean, I. I think that in life, you know, we, we want to have some overriding goal, you know, something that carries us through the muck of daily life and puts a trajectory on, on life. And mine, you know, from the time I was little, um, was always music, right? I was always had this kind of life force to, to be something, you know, to what it, I didn't even know what it was. And that's a good thing I didn't know what it was, because you couldn't know. There wasn't any footprint for playing the Buchla and being a sound designer and then making, you know, electronic albums. And, you know, so I think the unknown is, even though it's uncomfortable, uncomfortable is a good place to be. Uh, but that passion, for my, my main goal, my overriding goal was to make my first album. So everything was based on that from the time I got to New York. I mean, before that, I have to say, when I was in my live Buchla days, we didn't record because it was quadraphonic. Right. It was an experience. Mm. It was live. And it disappeared in the, in the air. But by the time I got to New York and the Buchla broke and technology shifted and MIDI came in, but even before MIDI, I mean, we had controllers. We had, you know, the Roland MC4, MC8. Dave Smith did a, a sequencer, the 800. Um, so anyway, the, it's, it's an interesting topic just to look at that integration of, you know, technological feasibility with what actually manifested as instruments. Mm. Um so you spoke about the first album that you uh, released as a solo recording artist, mm -hmm. uh, which is called Seven Waves, mm -hmm. and that was 1982, I believe? I think it came out in 1982. Okay. I think I started it in about 1979. Okay, so... It took a while. Sure. Um, and when it came out, it was... Uh, well, that particular album and the subsequent ones that you released... Uh, were kind of widely considered to be in this pool of music that was labelled as New Age. Was that something that surprised you in terms of the categorization, or you were comfortable with it? Or how did that feel to you to have worked your way towards this and having released it and then it being kind of considered in a particular way or a particular framework? Did that sit well with you? Well, you know, New Age as a as a category didn't come out until my third album. So my first two albums, you know, my first album was released first in Japan, then uh, on a small part of uh, Atlantic Records in the U.S., and then Velocity of Love uh, came out through RCA Red Seal, which was a classical label. So there really was no place for it. Um, and in the marketing, 
it was very challenging. Uh, in fact, it was impossible because people would get, if, you know, if my picture on it, they would think that I, I was a singer, a female, you know, a female recording artist was a singer. Right. And so it might, if you wanted to find the record, and in those days, record stores were kind of big. You didn't know where to go. You'd go to female vocals. Maybe they had some electronic category, jazz, um, classical. You didn't know where it was. So for me, by album three, when that category new age came along, I was grateful for the fact that there was now a place. I could tell somebody, if you want my album, go to the new age section. Is it new age? Who that? I don't know. I don't care. I don't. I don't identify with New Age. But if you want to find it, you can. And you know, it was a very controversial topic, uh, New Age. And you know, my my the velocity of love actually initiated a lot of the radio stations because it was a hit, and it was this soft, romantic, beautiful music, and and it got momentum. As, as radio. And that was pretty cool in those days. I wanted to ask you about your connection to the Finders Keepers label. Because um, I believe in 2012, they released uh, your logo presentation reels, uh, which dated back to 1985, and they released it as a tape. Was that an actual tape that existed in, like, in, in the form that it was re-released? Or is this kind of like a collection of work from from various sources because I I loved when I was listening through it you have it sounds like a showreel like these quite like um upbeat uh introductions to each of the sounds is that an actual tape that existed yes I mean in commercials uh we'd made demo tapes so you had to have a tape I had many many demo tapes I wouldn't say that that was one particular tape but I had many demo tapes I had a logo reel for logos I had uh, electronic. I had electronic and uh, orchestra. I'd have electronic and, you know, uh, band or whatever, you know. So we did a lot of different demo reels. Now, when Andy contacted me about releasing this old stuff, I thought he was just crazy. I, I had no <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I think it took almost two years for me to even notice he was there. Right. Because I, I was just dismissed it. It's like, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> because also by this, this stage, it's worth mentioning that you scored a film, you um, worked on uh, the Star Wars uh, disco soundtrack, I believe. Uh, you have uh, been nominated for a Grammy Award for your solo work as well. So you had built like a, a really prestigious reputation as a musician in your own right. By 2012? Yeah. Well, I had 15 albums yeah, absolutely. recorded. Yeah. Five Grammy nominations and yeah. and a million records sold. In my class in my classical identity. Sure. My romantic identity. Yeah. So I didn't think about going to you know, Andy bootstrapped this whole chapter. In my life, but there are other things that conspired that you know coincidentally to to bring this forward, especially the revolution in analog um, instruments. But Andy, I give him big credit for this, and I didn't see it. 
Um, how have you observed this uh, revolution in analog, as you put it? How, as somebody who um, was really at the forefront of it, how do you observe it now? You know, when I became aware, it's so funny because I really had no idea. I live on the beach at the end of a dirt road and a cabin. You know, I'm a little bit isolated from... I, I just choose to be isolated, maybe. So I really wasn't following any of this. When I became aware, uh, it was like coming out from under a rock. And it hit me with an instant, like, force. I do go to the, um, I used to go to the Audio Engineering Society every year. And then everybody kind of went to NAM, National Association of Music Manufacturers. And if you went downstairs at NAM, you could see the, you know, young up-and-coming designers. Uh, I saw Tony Rolando down there make noise in the basement, you know, at NAM. This has happened quickly. So then the next year I go back and there's just an acre of modular, well, not quite an acre, but there are a lot of a lot of modular instruments. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's it's accelerating now. I was just at this uh, Schneider's laden with the store, and he, they tell me they have over 2,000 modules that they sell by, you know, hundreds of different designers. I mean, you, you mentioned where you're living now um, in, a, in a small town, I'm assuming, or a small city. Small town, yeah. Small town. Um, and I was watching uh, this really incredible uh, YouTube video um, of you and Caitlin Aurelia-Smith. Um, and also I was reading up a little bit about how you two found each other. In 2016, uh, you released uh, Sun Energy together. Um, but I believe that you found each other in a kind of happenstance way. Um, in this very, very small town. Is that right? Yes, that's how we met. Yeah. It was a community dinner, so we have to entertain ourselves. And so <laughs> once a month, uh, somebody volunteers to make a dinner and you bring your own plate and fork and, you know, you show up at somebody's house. And they only allow 25 people because it would get out of control. So uh, I was at one of these dinners and it was after dinner and this young girl was sitting beside me on the floor and we started a conversation, and uh, she said that she had played the bukla. And I just, you know, I was kind of flabbergasted because I, I, you know, I was looking for an assistant, and I didn't have any hopes of finding anybody. I had had a German uh, assistant for a while. So, Caitlin, yeah, and then, uh, you know, she was there a short time because then she moved to L.A. So, we did that project, Sunergy, yeah. I guess as a final talking point, and um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the documentary, A Life in Waves, which was released, I believe, last year um, and debuted at South by Southwest. How did A Life in Waves come about? I was contacted by two young filmmakers. And again, I don't ever take these things seriously when they first, you know, proffered. Um, but I said, gee, you know, they were from Texas. And I said, I'm coming to Texas to see my family, my sister, for Christmas. So why don't we get together? And we met in Austin uh, at for lunch. 
and I really liked them. You know, they were a great little partnership, two guys that just had each other covered. You know, one of them was kind of the introverted, you know, intense, serious one, and the other one was extroverted, charming. And, uh, you know, I just thought, this is a good crew, and they wanted to do it. And I said, yes. And they did everything. They did that Kickstarter, which is a lot of work, and they did it with real heart. I mean, I I couldn't be more thankful. I had considerations about the direction of the film when they were doing it, because I was still very deeply into my piano. I was still concertizing on piano and releasing, you know, my romantic music. And they really skipped over that in their, you know, and it wasn't a high budget film. So, you know, when they came up to uh, my home to, to see me, I thought we were going to sit down and talk about the approach. They came in with the cameras rolling. <laughs> they said, you know, we need to get footage. <laughs> we're here. We can't afford another plane ticket. Okay, we're doing this now. So it was done. But you know, I, I think that, um, yeah, Bradford Thomason and Brett Whitcomb, uh, Brad really knew my music inside and out, everything I've ever written. And I think just the scoring alone that he did in that film is just brilliant. I didn't know that my music was just going to be the score to my own, you know, documentary. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the funny thing is, is that the music is always was very personal. So it came out of my life. It came out of how I felt when I left New York, how I felt when I got to New York, how I felt when, you know, so the music was always part of my life. So I guess it's not a complete surprise that it works in a story about my life. And I think he found the matches for the emotional story, the emotional parts of the story. And how was it for you to watch the final version of this representation of your life? How did it feel when you're watching that film? Oh, my God. I mean, the first time I watched it, I, it was in Austin, right? And uh, I had one take on it, and then I watched it again at another showing and realized that I had a completely different take on it. So I kind of understood that there is no there there. The film is not there. It's, it's how, you know, how do I feel when I watch it differently every time? And I've learned to forgive myself for the times when I have a very negative feeling and to enjoy if I have a positive feeling, uh, and not to read into it, uh, anything. I, I keep a little, I don't even have a copy of it. They're just sending me one now. It was a complete oversight. So <laughs> I think that everybody sees it differently, and that's what I've noticed, that people will come up and maybe one little thing triggered something. It might be a woman who says, wow, you know, I, you know, and, and it reinforces her in her, you know, approach to her own goals. Because I was stubborn. And that does come out. I grew up, or I came of age, professionally, 
at what I call a, uh, as the top of a wave, because everything's waves, right? <laughs> um, the top of a wave of women's rights and women's consciousness. And I think we're at the top of another wave now, but it was down for many years. It's a slow wave. So I'm excited that this film has come out at a time when, you know, we are focused on making an impact now, and we need to make it while we can make it, because those forces don't stay at the top of the wave. What? <laughs> 